So turn with me to Psalm 145. As you're turning there, I want to draw your attention to three things about this psalm. First, Psalm 145 was written by David. If you look at the psalm in your text, just before verse 1, you'll see the psalm's heading, which reads, A Psalm of Praise of David. So, Psalm 145 is a psalm of David, and it's actually his last psalm that we have for us in the book of Psalms. Second, Psalm 145 is an acrostic psalm. What does that mean? An acrostic psalm is a psalm that is constructed around the 22-letter Hebrew alphabet, where each verse begins with the next letter in the alphabet, one verse for each letter. The most famous acrostic psalm is Psalm 119, where there is a, a section for each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. But here in Psalm 145, there is only a verse for each letter. Now, the Hebrew alphabet has 22 letters, but this psalm, as you can tell, only has 21 verses. Why is that? Okay, look down at verse 13. In some Bibles, verse 13 ends talking about how God's dominion endures to all generations. But in other Bibles, like the ESV, the NIV, or the Christian Standard Bible, there is an unnumbered verse before verse 14 that goes something like this. The Lord is faithful in all His words and kind in all His works. Let's call this unnumbered verse, verse 13b. Okay. Now, if your translation includes verse 13b, you'll see brackets around it or maybe a note that explains why the translators believed that verse 13b was in the psalm originally. And it'll list out available manuscripts or ancient translations that include it. But also, without verse 13b, the acrostic is missing one letter. And so by including it, the acrostic is complete with 22 verses, one verse for each of the 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Number three, and finally, as we begin, I want you to know that this psalm, Psalm 145, is the only praise psalm in the entire book of Psalms. It's the only one. Now, many of you are probably thinking, I'm pretty sure there's more than just one praise psalm in the book of Psalms. And you're right, that's true. There is more than one. But this is the only psalm with a heading that actually labels it as a praise psalm, making it unique in that way. Okay, let's look at Psalm 145, verse 1. As we said before, the author is David, and he says to God, verse 1, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Verse 2, every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. So David begins this psalm with his personal commitment to extol, to exalt, to speak highly of God, who is also his king. David, remember, is king. But David is the kind of king who understands and, and leans into his role as a king that serves the, for the purpose and at the pleasure of a greater king. Now, when is, going, when is David going to do this praise that he's committed to? When will he praise the Lord? Verse 1, David will praise the Lord forever and ever. And verse 2, David will praise the Lord every day. Now, I think it's easy to read these verses and blow right past them as if in a praise psalm, statements like this about praising God are just kind of like 
throwaway lines. They're just what you say in a praise song. But I want us to think about them. David is saying, in 30 years, I want to be the kind of person, the kind of king, that is still praising the Lord. And not only that, this is something I want to do every single day over the course of those 30 years and beyond. Now let me ask you, how many, as you think back to the last week, how many things did you do last week that you hope you'll be doing 10, 20, or 30 years from now? There are very few things that rise to that level. And then ask yourself, even of those few things that you did last week, you hope you're doing 30 years from now, which of those things would you want to do every single day? For all those years, there are very, very few things on that list. Okay, kids, we're all the kids, right? Some right here, over there, yes? All right, I want you to think of your favorite food. Okay, do you have it in your mind? A lot of mac and cheeses out there, maybe, okay? Favorite food. How many of you would like to eat your favorite food for lunch today? Would that be good? Would that be good? Yeah. What if you, I told you you were also going to have that for tomorrow for lunch? Would that be good? You'd be excited about that? Yeah. Okay. What if I told you that I was going to make sure that you ate your favorite food every day for the rest of your life? How long do you think that that food would still be your favorite? Okay. Probably not very long. Okay. Probably not very long. You see, for all of us, even the few things that we hope to still be doing years from now, we wouldn't want to do them every single day because we would exhaust all of the joy and pleasure in them. They can't sustain that kind of demand on them. They are not strong enough, deep enough, or wide enough. And there would soon come a day when they wouldn't seem all that great anymore. Now, David has committed himself to praise the Lord forever and every day. But is, is that really something that someone can actually do? Can you do that forever and every day? Okay, look at verse 3. David says, verse 3, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. Can you praise the Lord forever and every day? The answer is yes. Why? Okay, because His greatness is limitless. We will never come to the end of it. Now, I don't usually tell a lot of stories, but I had to share this one. Okay? In 2002, as internet speeds were starting to get faster and faster, DirecTV released a commercial to highlight the speed of their new DSL internet service. Okay? DSL is the connection type that's just above the dial-up internet. So we're talking about very slow internet by today's standards. But back then, it was incredible. Okay? How many of you remember checking your, your Juno email account on a dial-up internet connection? Anybody? Yes, I remember this. Yes. Okay. Anybody still have a Juno email account? Okay. Do not admit that. Don't admit that. If you need, come talk to me afterward. I'll help you. Okay. Well, in this commercial, a man is sitting in his home office, browsing the internet, and then suddenly there's this pop-up alerting him with this message. It says, you have reached the end of the internet. You have seen everything there is to see. Do you remember this? Anybody remember this? Oh, you've got to Google it today. It's great. The point of this commercial was to showcase the speed of DirecTV's new DSL internet connection. Now, of course, even then, no one, no one thought of the internet as something you could finish. 
It's too big. It's always getting bigger. But technically, the internet is not infinite. There is technically an end to it. And often, it's just not even available to us. But there will never come a day when you will finish God. There will never come a day when you will have full knowledge of God. He is great and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. And there will never come a day when he is no longer great. And we're not used to this. We're, we're used to greatness going in cycles, right? Uh, sports dynasties come and go. Companies become profitable and then eventually go bankrupt. Great artists die and their artistic output is over. Young action stars grow old and their fight scenes become, fight scenes become unbelievable, right? But God's greatness never declines. He is great and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. And so if David ever struggles in his commitment to praise the Lord forever and every day, it won't be because of any shortcoming in God. It will be because of a shortcoming in David. And this is also true for us. If there is ever a day when we are struggling to praise the Lord, it won't be because God is not great on that day. It won't be because of any shortcoming in God, but rather a shortcoming in us. Pray for yourselves and those around you that, that 10, 20, 30 years from now, by God's grace, you will still be praising the Lord. Now, over the last week or two, <clears throat> as I've been studying Psalm 145, uh, I've noticed how little of my prayers actually include praise to God. I was asking for good things, and certainly that brings glory to God, but very little of my time in prayer had been strictly dedicated to meditating on the glory of God's greatness. And of course, personal prayer is not the only time that we can praise the Lord, but of all the ways that we can praise the Lord, our personal prayer time, when it's just me and God, our personal prayer time is probably the best measure of our heart's desire to praise the Lord. And honestly, it's been really encouraging for me to see this begin to change. My heart has been more encouraged as I've spent more time deliberately praising the Lord. And it's made me want to know him even better, to be able to praise him for more and more things about his unsearchable greatness. Now, if you ever find yourself in a place where you are struggling to praise the Lord, and maybe you are there today, then Psalm 145 is a great psalm for you. Look at verse 4. Look at verse 4 and watch all the times that God's works are mentioned. Verse 4, one generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Verse 5, on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. So David here is informing our praise by telling us to look at all the things that God has done because his works tell us about him. But David is even more specific than this. What do God's works tell us about him? Well, verse 6, there is the might of your awesome deeds, the power of God. Verse 7, there's God's abundant goodness and his, his righteousness. So we have his power, his goodness, his righteousness. This is the testimony of of his works. Now, David doesn't actually go in and, 
and list out any of the great things that God has done. But the story of the Bible is, is filled with them, like the creation, the Passover, the exodus from Egypt, the flood, the battle of Jericho, and on and on we could go. But God's works aren't limited only to what he has revealed to us in the story of the Bible. He's at work every day in our lives. And when we interpret the events of our lives through the lens of God's word, we can see his unsearchable greatness, and we ought to praise him for this. Looking for the testimony of God's works in his word and in our lives is good for us. It's good for our hearts, but it's also good for those whom God has put around us. Notice how David in these lines spoke about one generation telling his works to the next generation. God has given us an incredible opportunity to encourage those around us by pointing them to God's unsearchable greatness in his works. And that's why God commanded Israel to to pass along the stories of what he had done from parents to children in Deuteronomy 4. God said, take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. And so you see, it is critical for the faith of our faith and the faith of those around us that the older generation tells the next generation about God's works. And we all know, if you've been here for any length of time, what happens when one generation doesn't do that for the next generation. We just finished the book of Judges, which began how? In Judges chapter 2, this is what we read. There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. They're responsible for their own choices, but their parents also failed to pass along the stories of God's greatness. And so one of the ways God guards the faith of his people is by putting us with others whom we can help and who can help us to see the unsearchable greatness of God in his works. In Deuteronomy, this was parents to children. But in the family of God, that can be older people telling younger people or just friends with friends so that all of us might praise God for his power, his goodness, and his righteousness. Now, kids, kids, look at me again. Look at me. Look at me. Where are you at? Over there. All right. Look at your parents. Look at your parents. If I'm your parent, you can look at me, but okay. Look at, okay. All right. Now, look back at me. Look back at me. All right. One of the reasons that God gave you your parents is so that they could tell you the stories of God's mighty works. And so when your parents gather you, maybe at supper time or maybe right before bed for your family devotions, and they tell you stories from the Bible, one of the reasons that they're doing this is to help you understand the greatness of God. And at RBC, all of you kids are doubly blessed because not only do you have parents who want to tell you the stories of God's greatness, but you have many adults who care about you. And when they talk to you, they want to tell you the ways that God is at work in their lives so that you understand the unsearchable greatness of God. And so to you kids this morning, I would tell you to please listen to your parents and to the adults around you when they tell you what God is doing in their lives and the stories of his greatness from his word. And pray that God would help you to see his greatness and praise him forever and every day. Now in verses 8 and 9, David expands upon his description of God's unsearchable greatness. God is mighty, he's good, he's righteous, but that's not all. Look at verse 8. 
The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. In these verses, David is quoting from an ancient story. Do you recognize it? Apparently, David is thinking back to that time when Israel was fresh out of Egypt and gathered around Mount Sinai. Moses has gone back up the mountain after the people's sin with the golden calf, and there on the mountain, God passes before Moses and describes himself this way. God says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Our God is the kind of God who gives good things to those who don't deserve it. And he withholds judgment when judgment is deserved. He's slow to anger. He's gracious and merciful. When we would have expected his grace and mercy to run out, it continues. He abounds in steadfast love. And, and so abundant is his, his goodness and his mercy that, that he doesn't even limit his goodness and mercy only to his people. Everyone benefits from the goodness and mercy of God. In fact, in Matthew 5, Jesus said that God makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. God's goodness is all around us. You can see his goodness in a beautiful landscape or in the simplest of things, like the sweetness of a piece of fruit. Okay? But of course, many people just are in awe of the landscape and enjoy the fruit with, without recognizing that these come from God, but the Lord is good to everyone. And even though many do, do what I just said, they, they enjoy his creation while rejecting him, he is patient and merciful. But make no mistake, God has judged sin before, and he will judge sin again. But he is patient and he is merciful. He would be just to judge all rebellion right now, but he waits. And so we praise the Lord for his unsearchable greatness. Verse 10. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. Verse 11, they shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power. In this section, verses 10 through 13, the focus turns to God's kingdom. And we hear his works, we listen to his people, and they're all so excited about being a part of God's kingdom. God's people love their king. Verse 11 again, they shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power. The people who live under God's rule and embrace him as their king, they love him. They love the way he rules, the way he cares for his people. They love his kingdom. And so they love to talk about how great he is and how great his kingdom is. Why is that? Verse 12. They want to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Verse 13. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. God's kingdom is not like any other human kingdom of this earth. Just yesterday, the world, or some of the world, watched as Charles was crowned king. And yet his kingdom is not what it once was, and such is the story of every human kingdom. No matter how indispensable it may seem at its height, all of them eventually decline and disappear. But there will be no end to God's kingdom. There will never come a day when there are ruins and tour guides to tell the story of how God's kingdom was overthrown and fell. Now, what we've seen throughout all these verses thus far, I hope has caused you, in a sense, to, to look up, 
to have our eyes be lifted up to see God's unsearchable greatness. And it would certainly be a comfort just to know that this kind of king was at the top of the government where we lived. That this kind of king is, is over all the things that affect me. I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even need to like, talk to him or meet him. It would just be enough to know that that kind of person is up there. That would be great. And yet with our God, he is not just the the great, amazing, perfect king up there. The king whom we can trust from afar, as, as wonderful as that would be. No, this king reaches down to us. Look at verse 13b, the unnumbered verse. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. Verse 14. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. Now, there are many places in Scripture where we see God's concern for the poor, the oppressed, the fatherless, the widow, the sojourner. He cares for the weak, and he loves to see people caring for the weak, and he hates to see people exploiting the weak. But in this passage, because it is a promise that God will uphold them, that he will raise up those who are bowed down. In this passage, it is the falling and bowed down of his people that are in view. When, when we are falling, when we suffer, when we're bowed down, when we are, we, are, we are burdened, when we feel the weight of our difficulties, the heaviness of our discouragement, or the oppression and enslavement of our sin, or the opposition of those who are against God, In all of those situations, we have hope because the Lord, our King, reaches down to raise us up. Verse 15, the eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. And so here again, we see our God, our King, reaching down. But who's he reaching down to? Probably David is thinking of how everyone And everything looks to the Lord. How how everyone and everything is dependent upon the Lord. You see, David has has widened our focus to show us God's power and attentiveness to care for such a vast and varied creation. And he shows us this to prove the trustworthiness of God to care for his people. If God can care so much for his creation, then surely he can care for his people always with faithful words and kind works. It reminds me of the way Jesus talked, as Jeremy read earlier. He said, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? This God, your King, knows how to care for his world, the small and the great. He knows how to reach down to you with his help. Now, David wants, us, wants to convince us that the unsearchably great God reaches down to us, not only so that we will praise him for that, but also so that when we are falling and bowed down, he wants us to turn to God immediately and trust him. Verse 17, he wants us to trust that the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. When we're in trouble, When you have fallen or are bowed down, your king is reaching down to you. And what you need to know about him in that moment is that he has made no mistake in your difficulty. The Lord is righteous 
in all of his ways. The difficulty is the right thing for God's purpose. But not only that, the Lord has also been very kind to you. The Lord is kind in all his works. In every action toward us, God is acting with kindness, which means that in every action toward us, God is acting for our good. All of his works are right and kind. And of course, this doesn't mean that everything he does, all his works toward us, are easy for us or are the works that we would want him to do or choose for ourselves. But we can never look at God, look at what he has done toward us, and say that he has made a mistake or that he has been unkind to us. And his kindness goes even further than this. Look down at verse 18 through 20. And we see the the care that God provides for those who are falling and bowed down. Verse 18, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. Verse 19, he fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. Have you fallen down in discouragement or sin are you, are you bowed down by, by anxiety or fear this morning? The Lord wants to be near you. He wants to fulfill your desires, and he wants to preserve you to the very end. And so the way that we receive and enjoy this care from the Lord is by calling on him sincerely, by fearing him, and by loving him. And I want to look at each of those briefly with you this morning. Verse 18, the Lord is near to all who call on him in truth. He is near to, he helps, he hears all who call on him in truth or sincerely. Okay. Now maybe you're thinking this morning, maybe you're, you're feeling weighted down, bowed down, and you're thinking, of course I'm sincere when I ask God for help. Okay. And many times we are. But in thinking about this, sometimes we can be insincere in the way that we call upon the Lord. Like when we have already decided what his help must look like. We don't really want the help he offers. We want the help that we prefer. Or sometimes, I do this, we can be insincere by asking our small group or those around us to pray that God would help us. But then we don't pray about that ourselves. Or in our day-to-day lives, we, we give little thought to what God might be doing to answer our prayers and just run around trying to do everything we know we need to do to get through this. We talk with others like we want God's help but then we act like it is completely up to us. But the Lord will be near you if you will call on him in truth. And verse 19, he fulfills the desire of those who fear him. Now that sounds good, right? God will fulfill your desires. Here's a promise that God will give you whatever you want, right? That sounds really good. Not exactly. Look more closely. To whom does God give this promise of fulfilled desires? To the one who fears the Lord. To the person who wants to submit to God as their king. To the person who wants to live in God's world, God's way. To that person, God promises to fulfill their desires. Okay, so that means if I fear the Lord, then I get everything I want, right? Well, sort of. Okay, I would say it like this. If you fear God... If you fear God, he will always give you what you want the most. If you fear God, he will always give you what you want the most. Think about it. What does the person who fears God want 
the most. The one who fears God wants most whatever God wants. Why is that? Well, because if I fear God, I know God's power, his righteousness, his goodness, kindness, grace, mercy, love, and patience. That's why I want to live in his world so much. And so whatever God wants, that's what I want the most. So if we, if we fear God, we will want most whatever God wants. And that's exactly what he will always give us. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, I, I know what I want in this situation, and what I want isn't wrong, but I'm not sure if, it what, if it's what God wants. Okay? I think that's pretty normal. That's like the typical scenario, right? Where what we want is not something bad, but we're not sure if it's what God wants. Maybe you want to get married and have kids. You want to get a better paying job. You want to buy this particular house or kids. Maybe you want your family to go on this specific vacation or you want to get a really good grade on the test next week. Okay? These can all be good things, but are they what God wants for you? We don't know for sure. Okay? Then is it wrong to pray for them? Okay? No, absolutely not. The one who fears the Lord will make sure, however, that what he wants most in each situation is what he knows God wants. For example, if you're trying to buy this house on 11th Avenue, okay, and you wisely believe that this would be a good house for you, then pray that God would give you that house. But pray more earnestly for other things, the things you know that he wants for you. Things like that God would use this time of uncertainty and waiting to grow your faith in him and your knowledge of his character. Pray for a heart of contentment so that you can glorify God in your response if you don't get this particular house. Pray that God would help you to use your current resources to show hospitality to others. And pray that God would guard you from treating this house or any of your possessions as your God. We don't know if God wants us to have this particular house, but we know that these things I just went through are requests that God wants for us. And so they are what we should want the most even as we pray for the things we believe would be good for us. And so finally, God's comfort and strength and salvation are for those who love him. Look at verse 20. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. When we are falling and bowed down, we will be tempted to reject God and turn to self-love, even to indulge our flesh to make us feel better. But the best thing for us is always to keep turning to the Lord, to love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind, our might. Love God, and you have his promise that he will always preserve you to the end, till the day when you stand before him in the fullness of his kingdom. Praise the Lord that in his unsearchable greatness, he reaches down to help those who are falling and bowed down. It's amazing to think that such greatness that we saw at the beginning of the psalm would show such humility in reaching down to us. And yet, yet this psalm has not even described the full extent to which God has reached down to save us. We are bowed down by sin, and in our wickedness, we deserved destruction. But God reached down to us in Jesus Christ. Earlier today, maybe you saw this, we sang praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. And then right after that, we sang, come behold the wondrous mystery 
in the dawning of the king. He, the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity, in our longing, in our darkness, now the light of life has come. Look to Christ, who condescended, took on flesh to ransom us. Jesus Christ is God in flesh, the Son of God who, who emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. There is no greater burden upon us than our sin. And so there is no greater relief than to be forgiven. And this is what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. This is the unsearchable greatness of God, that one so great would humble himself so far to die on a cross to save those who so deserved judgment and destruction. And so if you are bowed down in your sin this morning, enslaved to its power and facing its judgment from God, then turn today to the great God who has reached down to you in Jesus Christ and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. He will lift you up. And for those of us who are already trusting Christ, perhaps today, perhaps you think about the events of the last week and, and because of them, in light of them, you, you feel fallen down and bowed down, discouraged, fearful, anxious, and hurting. In Christ, God continues to reach down to you with his grace with all that you need today to keep turning to him, to keep fearing him, to keep loving him, and he will lift you up. And if your heart is struggling to trust these promises of his care for you, then start the way David did today. Go home and immerse your heart in praise to God. Commit to praise him forever and every day, asking him to show you his unsearchable greatness, that the faith of your heart would be strengthened and encouraged. And so by God's grace, I pray that verse 21 would be both the commitment and the desire of all of our hearts today. Our mouths will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are such a great God that you have such limitless power, limitless goodness and mercy and grace. You have been so kind to us. You are so patient. We thank you for the way that you rule over your kingdom and the joy it is to be one of your people. Lord, we thank you also for how you have been kind to us in Christ and in reaching down to us with your mercy and grace and reaching down to us by becoming one of us, by sending your son, Jesus, to become a human, to take on our flesh, to die in our place. Thank you for this way that you have reached down to us and how you reach down to us every day with your kindness and grace and strength. Lord, we know that you are a God who judges sin. And so we praise you that you have been kind to rescue all those who turn from their sin to trust in you. So I pray that you would make us a people who are committed to praise you forever and every day. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.